Let's go straight into a session. We'll have a 24-minute session. I left my cell phone over there, so it'll have to be voice-guided. But this will be a guided meditation. Um, if it's already set, okay. Now with fewer words of guidance, let's settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Beginning as always by letting the awareness descend into the field of the body right down to the ground. Let your, your awareness permeate the whole field of the body, illuminating the sensations throughout. Gently attend to those areas that feel tight. And as you breathe out, surrender those muscles to gravity, soften them, loosen them, soften all of the muscles of the face. your body relaxed and at ease. Be still apart from the movement of the breath and adopt a posture of vigilance with your spine straight, your chest slightly lifted, abdominal muscles loose and relaxed so that when you breathe in, the sensations of the breath, you feel from the bottom up as if you were filling a vase with water. Sensations of the breath go down to the belly as you continue, continue to inhale. After the belly, then the diaphragm expands. And if it's a deep breath, finally the chest will expand.
In this way, settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant, and then settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, relaxing deeply and fully through every out-breath. As you release tension in the body, release the breath, and release thoughts, images, memories that may come to mind. Relax so deeply and fully throughout the out-breath, right through the end, that you feel as if the in-breath is just flowing in of its own accord, that is being given to you without your taking it. In other words, don't pull it in. Let it flow in. Apply your will to your own mind and deliberately release all concerns just for the time being. All concerns relating to the future and the past. Allow yourself this freedom and this luxury to let your awareness come to rest quietly, non-conceptually, in stillness, in the present moment.
And now, as if you were rebooting the computer, shutting down all the operating systems, all the programs, but without pulling the plug, for just a brief time, let your eyes be open. Evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you. But without meditating on anything, shut down all your programs without taking anything as an object, without directing your attention here or there. Just rest with no object. Just being aware. But without deliberately attending to any appearances, either sensory or mental, just let your awareness hover motionlessly in the present moment. Sustain this flow of non-conceptual, mindful presence without distraction and without grasping, without allowing your attention to be drawn away to any sensory stimulus, without being caught up and carried away by thought. your awareness hold its own ground without being caught up and carried away in distraction. And sustain this awareness without grasping, without latching onto, labeling, conceptualizing, preferring anything, just being present.
now taking the first step towards a close application of mindfulness to the body, which includes all physical phenomena, not just your own and others' bodies, as an initial step now. Let your awareness illuminate all of the five sensory fields. The visual, the auditory, the olfactory, the field of smells, the gustatory of tastes, and the tactile. without preference and without moving. Let your awareness illuminate all of these five sensory fields. While sounds come and go, tactile sensations come and go, let your awareness be still. To the best of your awareness, to the best of your ability, let your awareness remain in a non-conceptual mode, a quiet witnessing, discerning, attentive, clear and sharp, but without superimposing categories, labels, judgments. In other words, rest in clear receptivity. While your mindfulness illuminates these five fields of sensory experience, apply your faculty of introspection to monitor the flow of mindfulness, 
recognize as swiftly as possible when you've fallen into excitation, agitation, the mind has become distracted. And as soon as you see that excitation is set in, apply the response, the remedy. First of all, relax. Loosen up. Then release whatever captivated your attention. And thirdly, return to the present moment. With your mindfulness open to all of the five sense fields. So relax, release, and return. It's imperative to, fl- to maintain a flow of knowing, not spacing out, not becoming vague. So when you see with your faculty of introspection that you're losing clarity, becoming a bit dull, recognize the laxity and apply the appropriate remedy. Refresh your interest in the practice. Refocus your attention in the present moment and retain the flow of mindfulness. Refresh, refocus, and retain.
Onasu. Is it like putting our, our toe in the water? Just getting a little tiny taste. So one might wonder, you might wonder, what was that practice? Shall we give it a name? Shall we give it a label? I don't have a label. I do know, though, that the first book on Buddhist meditation that I ever read, that I could actually understand, was a book that's now, I think it must have been published in the 1950s, latest, about 1960. When I read it in 1970, it had been out for already a number of years, and that's The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by a German monk, scholar, translator by the name of Nyanaponagatera. Uh, he was interned during the Second World War. I uh, can't remember whether it was India, I think in Sri Lanka, and then became a monk, and then became really very accomplished uh, scholar, translator. And he wrote this book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, on the four applications of mindfulness, which he translated as the four foundations of mindfulness. And it was he, this is a matter of historical interest. He was the one that coined the term in English, because uh, I think he wrote the book originally in English, even, even though he's German. He coined the term bare attention. Bare attention. As your entry into the practice of the four applications of mindfulness. He never equated mindfulness with bare attention, and when he heard later popularizers of Satipatthana doing so, he was quite appalled. Boy, you really missed it. Oh, you've dumbed it down. You've, done, you've been a real reductionist here. He was not pleased at all. And I have this from a direct disciple of his, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is now one of our really absolute best modern scholars. He's a monk, of course, scholar, translator, really outstanding work. He's really right there at the top. Uh, and so he, he was a direct disciple of Nyanaponakatera, mm, and he made this point, because Bhikkhu Bodhi also being the outstanding scholar that he is, he is perfectly aware, probably much more than I am, and I'm pretty aware, of the tremendous richness of the, the Buddhist genre of practice called Vipassana, and then that specific modality, that specific set of practices called the Satipatthana, or for, for applications of mindfulness, the richness, the, the theoretical depth, the sophistication of the methods involved, and, and the, the diversity of practices that are applied to all of the four applications of mindfulness. I mean, it's just tremendously rich. And to see that all kind of reduced to mindfulness is just bare attention, bare attention is vipassana. Vipassana is mindfulness, mindfulness is bare attention. Basically, that's all there is to it, folks. Now just sit in bare attention and you've got the whole thing. It's like, uh, you know, like, how could you? you know? Well, that's what happens when you, popular, when you popularize. You want to present a practice with a theory that is accessible, that's helpful, so there's nothing wrong with popularizing. I think there is something profoundly wrong with popularizing and then saying that's all there is. There's just nothing more to it than that. That's really profoundly misleading. And that's happened a lot in the popularization of vipassana, generally, the four applications of mindfulness in particular. And then there's been some kind of imports into this practice also. Uh, one that's become very popular in the modern vipassana movement is called choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness. So one might use that. There's a label that's been out for a while. Choiceless awareness, been out for a good, oh, at least 35, 40 years by now. And one might say, oh, but that's, that's what we were just practicing. Choiceless, because we were not going, we're not choosing the visual over the auditory or this, just open to all the five sense fields. And so isn't that choiceless awareness? Well, the news is, and I have this from another top scholar, who's the editor of the 
uh, Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka, that this term, and I saw, I checked it out, I verified what he said, that this term choices awareness is actually not a Buddhist term at all. It's not found in any Buddhist text, any text or commentary, not the Buddhist teachings or any later commentary literature. It's actually a term coined by and defined by Krishnamurti, who is not a Buddhist, never taught Buddhism, and so, but some of the early popularizers of Vipassana really liked it, and so they just said, we'll take that, and they kind of slipped it in, like slipping, I don't know, something into your drink. There's nothing wrong with the practice, but it's not a Buddhist practice, never was, and it doesn't become a Buddhist practice just by saying so. You know? Otherwise, if I like Freud, I could just start taking ideas from Freud and saying, this is Buddhism, just because I like it. Well, that's, we know that's not legitimate, and likewise, Krishnamurti is Krishnamurti. He has his own deal going, Let's respect that for what it is and what, and what it's not. But what it's not is, it's not Buddhism. So it's not choices awareness. With, if you want to call this choice awareness, you can. But let's, let's give Krishnamurti his due. Let him do his own trip, which is not a Buddhist trip. Now, with the popularization not only of Vipassana, but also of Dzogchen, where you can go for a weekend on Dzogchen and come out thinking, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner, you might think what we just did was open presence. Open presence. It was present and it was open. And so, was that Dzogchen? And the answer is 100% emphatically and, oh, very enthusiastically, no. That was not Dzogchen. That wasn't even close to, that's not even in the same ballpark. Of it's not in the same continent as Dzogchen. Dzogchen is in the Nyingma tradition, where it's most strongly preserved and taught and realized. Dzogchen is the ninth yana, the pinnacle of all of the Buddha Dharma, starting with the Shravakayana, the foundation, the glorious foundation, the Pratyega Buddhayana of solitary realizers, the, the Bodhisattva Yana, and then right on through the various stages of Vajrayana up to Maha Yoga, Atti Yoga, or Anu Yoga, and then finally, the pinnacle of pinnacles, the ninth, the, the ninth Yana, Atti Yoga, which is synonymous with Dzogchen. So to take the essence of Dzogchen meditation and bring it down to the bottom and say that's Dzogchen is really quite silly. So, I speak here not with my own authority, but I'm drawing now very explicitly, oh, just but pretty much all the classic Dzogchen literature. There's really no, there's no, there's no dissent here. There's a right answer. What is Dzogchen meditation? And what's the term? And the term is Rikpa Choksha. So this open presence, that's Choksha. It's not a bad translation. Choksha it means just letting be, just resting, just being present. Choksha. Uh, nice literal translation, just kind of let it be, let it be. So the Beatles probably got it from let it be, let it be. But it's not just letting be. It's Rikpa Choksha. Rikpa is pristine awareness. It's Buddha nature. It's Tathagata Garbha. It's Dharmakaya. It doesn't get any deeper than that. And so it's Rikpa Choksha. What this means is that you have ascertained Rikpa. You are viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, of a dimension of consciousness that beyond time, beyond space, beyond individuation, beyond all conceptual elaboration, it is completely inconceivable but you've broken through to that dimension of consciousness and you're actually viewing reality from that perspective. That's called tekchut, breakthrough to primordial purity of pristine awareness. Once you've broken through and you actually are viewing reality from that perspective, then you just rest. There's nothing to do. I mean, literally, absolutely nothing to do. You are just being aware and... Your awareness is pristine awareness. You are just being pristinely aware. 
you are Buddha nature, you are Dharmakaya. Or in the new translation schools, you are the innate mind of clear light. According to Dalai Lama, same term. Two different terms for the same reality. Innate mind of clear light, Rikpa, same. And so having broken through to that, you're viewing reality from that perspective, and then you just rest with your awareness wide open, doing nothing whatsoever. And that's Rikpa Choksha. So to now paraphrase very closely, it's almost a direct quote, from Dujum Lingba, and I will refer to him probably multiple times over this eight weeks. 19th century grandmaster. 13 of his disciples achieved rainbow body. I don't know anybody in recent history who's matched that. And he's living not in New York City, like, you know, with 8 million people around. He's living out in the nomadic highlands of eastern Tibet. And so that's pretty low population density out there. They have 13 disciples who achieve rainbow body. It's quite extraordinary. So there he was. Consummate Dzogchen, Dertun, treasure revealer, profound realization, and just extraordinary teacher. And he makes this point, but he speaks, it, he speaks for the whole tradition. He's not an iconoclast, he's not stepping out. He speaks for the whole tradition when he says that Dzogchen meditation, this Rikpa Choksha, is nothing other than sustaining the view of Dzogchen. That means you must be viewing reality from the perspective of Dzogchen, which is nothing other than viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa. And so that's all there is to it. But if you don't have the Dzogchen view, if you're not viewing reality from that perspective, there is no such thing as Dzogchen meditation. That's it. Because the meditation is nothing other than breaking through to that way of viewing reality and then just being there. But to compare that with what we just did, where there was no reference to Dzogchen view, no reference to Dzogchen way of life, and then just sitting here. Not the same thing? Let's just put it that way. And so it is misleading if anyone, and I don't know any, if anybody does, but I kind of think there are some people, says, you know, that's Dzogchen. Well, that's Dzogchen like, oh, not. I'll just put it that way. Okay? But now, why did I teach it? To ridicule it? No, there's nothing wrong with that practice. It's useful. Bear attention as this outstanding scholar, practitioner, monk, Yanaponikatera pointed out some 50 years ago or so, that bare attention really is valuable. And that's why, again, that I consider those 24 minutes well spent. What's the point here? Is that a central theme that will run through this whole eight weeks, it's central for all of Vipassana, central for all of the four applications of mindfulness, really core, is developing the ability through experience of being able to distinguish what is reality presenting, that is, what's immediately arising to all of your six fields of awareness, the five sensory and mental, what's manifesting, what's being presented, versus what are you superimposing? The labels, the categories, the preferences, the ruminations, the judgments, and so forth and so on. It's not to say that we should not label, that we should never exercise good judgment, that we should never use categories and so forth and so on, that we should never think, consider, reflect. Of course, of course we should. Of course we should. But it's also crucial. This is in day-to-day life. It's crucial in attending to our own personal reality here of body and mind, attending to the environment around us. It's crucial in scientific research. It's crucial to distinguish what are you superimposing and what's being presented, 
and not conflate the two, fuse the two to the point that you can no longer tell the difference. That's crucial. Okay? And moreover, the Buddhist premise is that we're, we are do engaging in this delusional confusion, because that's what it is. It's a fusing together. We're engaging in delusional confusion as our daily bread. We do it all the time, every day. And it has big disadvantages. It gives rise to an enormous amount of unnecessary suffering. Right? So everything here in these eight weeks, while it's going very much into insight, into knowledge, wisdom, direct realization, it's all has it's, it's nested, it's embedded in a pragmatic orientation. This is not what drives a lot of science, and I say this with respect for science, but what drives a lot of science is sheer curiosity. And there's nothing wrong with that, and it's given rise to a lot of really brilliant discoveries. Okay, Fine, that's good. That's not what drives Buddhism. That's not what drove the Buddha. The Four Noble Truths are not, not about curiosity. The Eightfold Noble Path, the Four Applications of Mindfulness and so forth, there's something a lot more than curiosity going on. It's fundamentally pragmatic. And that is attending to the reality of suffering, the sources of suffering, the possibility of freedom, and then following that path. The whole of the Buddha Dharma is embedded in that framework. And mere curiosity, nothing wrong with it. Not condemning it. But that simply is not the motivating force in, in Buddhism. So, what we did here in this just quiet awareness, first of all, kind of rebooting. I like the image, although I don't generally like mind-computer analogies. This one actually seems to work pretty well. The practice where we, did, we just settle body and then the respiration and then mind, that comes directly from Padmasambhava's text, Natural Liberation, which I translated years ago under Gyatrunabhuch's guidance. And that's just what he does. You're settling the body, then you're settling your speech in effortless silence, you're settling the respiration in nice, smooth flow. And then he says, and you can see it there in the text, he says, now just rest your awareness vacantly in space, just evenly in space, and don't attend to anything. Don't meditate on anything. Don't take anything as an object. And so everything that you were doing previously, you're shutting down. Just like having your computer, having a whole bunch of programs open, and then you see the computer's just getting really funky. It's, it's, it's behaving badly. So if you're an amateur like me and you don't know much about the innards of a computer, say, oh, it's being funky. Maybe I'll just reboot and hope for the best. And sometimes that works, right? Sometimes. If it's a pretty, just a little minor glitch, just shut the whole system down. It goes boop without turning off the electricity and having shut down all your programs, then they come back on again and lo and behold, it, gla- it fills your heart with gladness. <laughs> when you see that the problem has actually vanished just by rebooting. Well, this is a kind of rebooting. That is, we get caught in rumination. We get caught in what I've called, and you've probably heard it before, obsessive, compulsive, delusional disorder. We get caught in, in psychological terms, the refractory period, getting really uptight, narrow-minded, locked into some perspective. And so the mind operates in a dysfunctional way in a, in a quite wide, wide variety of ways. And in this, in this simple task of just shutting down the system, just into the body, into the breath, into the mind, no object, no systems operating, just just leaving the light of awareness on, but without using it, without directing it, just leaving it there, just being present. And then turn on your system. 
And so we turned on the system, that is, we directed the awareness in a very simple way. It says, this little light of mine, let it shine, right, through the five sensory fields. Because we're venturing into the close application of mindfulness to the body, which really, as I mentioned before, actually covers the entire physical realm, all, all of five sensory fields, everything physical. It's included in that. And the body is where we're starting from. You know, where are you looking from? From the perspective of your own body, so you're attending to the physical. And so the idea there was to just get as clean data as you can. That's why it was so simple. Be aware, discerningly, clearly, knowingly, but as quietly as you can, so that you're actually picking up the sounds as sounds, the sights as sights, tactile sensations as tactile sensations, without conflating them or confusing them with all of the categories, labels, and objectification that we superimpose upon appearances. So if we draw an analogy with science, and I'll do that repeatedly, I'm sure, over the coming eight weeks, you're just trying to get clean data. Because when you have, when you have a, a system of measurement and you're first learning how it works and getting it to work well, it's bound to produce a lot of noise, artifacts of the system. And this happens in pretty much all fields of science, cosmology to molecular biology to neuroscience and so forth. When you, when you pick up something, you have to wonder if you're not really familiar if, with your instrument, if you're not totally confident that your system of measurement is operating correctly, when you get some data coming in, a good scientist has to ask, ask the question, is this data generated by my system of measurement, in other words, internally generated noise, junk, which has no relevance to anything outside the system of measurement, or actually is this information that my system of measurement is getting from something outside of the system of measurement? In other words, I'm actually detecting something in reality. Right? That's absolutely crucial. We saw a really good example of that just a few months ago when there were some physicists, and very good ones, who thought that they had, they had some data that suggested that, that neutrinos could travel a little bit faster than the speed of light. Remember that one? And I spoke with the physicists right after they came out, and they said, I doubt it. I bet my life on it. It's wrong. It's wrong. Because there was so much confidence behind Einstein's assertion that no particle will accelerate up to and beyond the speed of light. It won't even get to the speed of light, let alone go, go faster. But these were very good physicists. They crunched their data, and they said, no, it went a little bit schmidgen over, just a tiny bit faster than the speed of light, these very odd particles called neutrinos. So they published. They said, this is what we found. It went faster than the speed of light. Only a month or two later, other physicists came in and said, it was an artifact of your system. And that's good science. That's good science. They made an honest mistake, and other scientists came in, pointed out the mistake, so now it's back to status quo. As far as we know, particles do not go faster than the speed of light. But that's how science works, and I say that all with respect, that nobody expects scientists to be infallible, but there's where science really worked. They made a really intelligent mistake. What they mistook was artifact of their system for the actual speed of a neutrino. They conflated the two and drew the conclusion that a neutrino can travel faster than the speed of light. They got that one wrong, but that's because the system measurement and their way of analyzing the data was just a wee bit off, just enough off to make it appear that the particle traveled faster than the speed of light. So that's just one example. I won't give more from science, but now we're back to this contemplative science. Or in Sanskrit, it's called adhyatma vidya, inner, the inner science, the inner knowledge. One of the five major fields of knowledge of the great Nalanda tradition, which is preserved more than anywhere else nowadays in the Tibetan tradition. But this inner knowledge with knowledge of the mind being at its very core, and then as we investigate the mind, 
then observing, investigating how the mind relates to the rest of phenomena, the role of the mind in nature at large. So it's a science, it's a natural science from the inside out. We're starting from the mind, and rather than developing a telescope, we're, we're developing our attention skills. Right? That's the shamatha. To cut, cut down on the noise, the rumination, and then we begin to apply it. There we do the first baby step in that session. Applying it, and just trying to get clean data. As the Buddha said, in the scene, let there be just the scene, rather than all the junk you put on top of it. Like, isn't that pretty, or that's ugly, or I don't like that, or oh, that, blah, blah, blah. All the categories we superimpose on stuff and then think they're already out there. You know, we, we conceive them and then we orphan them. We actually project them on reality and then say, who, me? <laughs> I didn't do it. And if there are two of us who agree, then we know we're right. <laughs> That's good, but that happens an awful lot, you know. So there we are. There we are. Trying to just get clean data. So the Buddha said, in the scene, let it be just the scene. Pick up clear data so that you're not conflating the noise of your system, the artifacts of your system. And that is your memories, your associations, your prejudices, your hopes and fears, likes and dislikes. All that has its place inside the measurement system, but don't conflate it with what you're trying to measure, like other people, situations, environments, and so forth and so on. Try to get clean data. It's pretty smart. That's bare attention. Namo to Nyanabona He highlighted this. This is your entrance. It's not the middle phase. It's not the final phase. But it's your entry to getting really good, clean data as you closely apply mindfulness to your body, to feelings, mental states, and phenomena at large. Without that, without getting clean data, you can always be second-guessing yourself, wondering, did I really observe that or did I imagine it? Did I speculate? Did I superimpose? And so forth and so on. So, So we'll just call that entry into the first step into getting clean data, a clear awareness. And then we can ask, all right, now that we're venturing more beyond simply finding an inner peace, beyond the retreat of shamatha, right? Remember the retreat? When you're practicing shamatha, especially if you really go for it, you're, you're, you are retreating, quite rightfully so. You're losing the battle with samsara. You're getting beat up by surrounding environment, other people, but most intimately, getting beat up by your own mental afflictions. You just come out bruised, broken jaws, black eyes, and so forth. What hit you? Oh, anger, resentment, craving, jealousy, bleeding from all pores, you know? And so when you're kind of losing the battle with your own mental afflictions, losing the battle with samsara, that it's just stronger than you are, right? And that happens. You may be in certain environments where you feel, I can't practice here. If I were an Arya Bodhisattva, I could, but I'm not, and therefore, I can't practice here. This is just overwhelming. And on occasion, I've been in such environments where I know it's my limitation, but I know I need to get out because I can't flourish in this environment because it's stronger than I am. It's bringing out all the rubbish in me, and I don't have the strong enough defenses to protect myself from this environment. Right? So what do you do? You retreat. You retreat like a really smart military general that says, my, my forces are meeting overwhelming forces. So if I stay out there, they're going to get all wiped out. So, do, 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 advance to the rear. It's called retreat. right? Retreat quickly and don't throw away your weapons. 
That's called a rout. A rout is getting drunk. That's also retreat from reality. But that's throwing away all your weapons. Snorting cocaine, ecstasy, and so forth. That's a rout. You can't handle reality, so why don't you just dope yourself up? As many, many people are doing nowadays. They find reality quite intolerable. So let's, let's just throw our weapons of intelligence and mindfulness and so forth, throw them into the air, and you know, just say yes. Like that. So that's a route. But shamatha is not a route. Shamatha is a retreat, a really smart retreat. Why, do, why in the military do people go into retreat? Because they're facing overwhelming odds, and moreover, maybe they're running out of supplies or out of ammunition, and so forth. Or maybe they're on, in, in a bad area. Maybe they're at a disadvantage. The enemy is shooting downhill at them, and they, they're just sitting ducks. So what do you do? You retreat. You're bringing your weapons with you. Right? And then you get a good meal. You replenish your resp- re- supplies, your ammunition, and so forth and so on. You re-strategize. And then you think, okay, what strategy? Okay, to go back and to fight another day and eventually win the battle. Shamat is retreat. That's really what it is. You go into shamatha retreat. And that is you disengage from other people, disengage from activities in the world, dis- you simplify your life down to the bare minimum, and then you retreat from the sensory fields into maybe the tactile sensations of the breath, or you retreat into the mind, or you do the, the deepest retreat right into awareness itself, not even attending to, not even venturing out into your mind, let alone your body, let alone the surrounding environment you've gone into this real deep cubbyhole. Like, I'm just staying here. The sheer luminosity and cognizance of my own awareness, and I'm staying here, and world, take a hike. I am recuperating here. This little light of mine. Awareness. And just resting. That's really a retreat. So, it can be very useful. But we, in, this, in these eight weeks, we're doing more than retreat. We're venturing into the expedition. These are the two terms I really like. Retreat, you know, and it can be really smart. But then once you've retreated, regrouped, re-strategized, and you're ready to venture out into the world, then it's expedition time, like a military expedition. Expedition to go to the North Pole or what have you. Go someplace you've never been before. But again, the etymology is really great because expedition means ex, you're getting out your ped, your feet, from where they've been stuck. Expedition means getting out of ruts, getting out of old habits, extricating your feet from where they have been stuck. That's an expedition. Boy, Vipassana is just 100% expedition. There's no retreat involved. You're not withdrawing from any reality at all. The field of your attention is a whole of reality and will methodically go through it to the physical, to the affective, to the mental, and then the whole pratita samuppada, the dependent origination of all of these facets of reality and see how they arrive, arise in uh, codependent origination. But Vipassana is not retreat. Vipassana is an expedition to attend to reality, or to engage with reality, but in ways in which we do not fall back into our old ruts. So it's an expedition, right? So we may wonder, well, okay, who's qualified? If you enter the military, especially the special forces or the, you know, the ones that don't just draft you, then there's some, they'll, be doing, they'll be giving you a checkup, medical checkup, especially if you're going to Navy SEALs or special forces, Green Berets or what have you. They'll want to know you, you're made of the right stuff, right? You want to be a, 
but an Air Force pilot. Okay, the right, right stuff or not. Right? So who has the right stuff? What are the qualifications? What, what, gives you, what, what gives you the right stuff to venture out into the expedition of venturing under the Buddhist path to liberation? And for example, by way of the four applications of mindfulness. Well, Aryadeva, one of the great, really great pundits, scholars, contemplatives of the whole Indian Buddhist tradition, disciple of Nagarjuna, in his text, The 400 Verses, he just, he just pinpoints exactly what's necessary and to pass the entrance exam, to be qualified. Okay? So welcome on in. You're, ready for, you're suitable for the training. Just three qualities. Loden, Zurne, Dunyerwe. Disumre. Roya. So Loden, that's Tibetan. And so Loden, you must be perceptive. It's not a matter of how high your IQ is, but you better be really paying attention. If you're not paying attention, if you're not being perceptive, if you're not really interested in reality, you're just kind of doping out, stoning out, whatever. Sorry, you're 4F. Right? 4F in the mili American military, you don't get in. Okay? So you must be perceptive, attentive, interested, engaged. Loden, zurne, zurne is the tough one. You must be open-minded, free of prejudice, free of bias. You must be unbiased. You must be, as in the scientific sense of the term, objective. And that is being open to whatever reality dishes up, whether or not it accords with your assumptions, your beliefs, your preconceptions. And that is a tough one. It's really, really tough. To really be open-minded. Of course, it's ever so easy to open-mindedly be critical of other people's assumptions. That's really easy. Just have people start talking and say, I disagree with you on that point, and disagree with you, and you're wrong on that one, and you're definitely wrong on this point. Now, you're wrong on this point, and you're wrong on this point. As for me, oh no, my, my beliefs are all fine. But now, you're wrong on this point, and this is really easy to do. It's really easy to do. Open-mindedly critical and prejudicial with regards to everybody else's beliefs, especially when they're different from your own. That happens, unfortunately, a lot in science. It happens regularly in religion. It's all too common in philosophy and politics. Oh, 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 oh. It's the, the kiss of death to all of them. If our assumptions were so good, then we should be a lot happier than we are right now. If our way of viewing reality was completely authentic and in no need of any correction, of reassessment, we should already be fully awake, a Buddhas. We should be free of suffering. So if we're still suffering, if our minds are still cluttered with mental afflictions, then that would imply that we may be holding some beliefs and assumptions, but more importantly, we may be viewing reality in some ways that are simply delusional. And then we can ask, well, am I 100% deluded? No, I don't think anybody, not even a schizophrenic, is 100% delusion. They're getting most of it wrong. So no, we can't just say, well, my mind is totally broken, please give me a new one, because this one's worn out. Then we have to see, okay, within my mind, the ways, the ways I view reality, myself, other people, the environment, which aspects of the ways I view reality do not stand up to critical analysis that prove themselves to be faulty, not based on reality, just speculation or false assumption. And so there it is. There's a core theme 
be open-minded and be, above all, be willing to reassess even your most cherished assumptions. Even assumptions you bet your life on. Be willing to reassess. If you're not, so sorry, you're not qualified. You can go off and follow some other tradition. But you're really not suitable for this path. And then the final one is you must really have a passion, a great longing, a commitment to put the teachings into practice. If one only wants to listen to them and think about them and then write papers and essays and maybe get a degree, that's fine. Get a university degree, perhaps, maybe, maybe get a university job, but you're not qualified. You're not follow, qualified to follow, follow the Buddhist path because following the Buddhist path means you hear, you understand, you test, and then when you see that a certain practice is authentic, then you put it into practice. You apply it. You are a, a, an applied scientist and not just a theoretical scientist. And your science is a science of your own life in relationship to the world around you. So there it is, just those three qualities. Receptive, open-minded, with a great passion to practice. Well, I do have some scientific background. And if you're venturing into biology, astronomy, physics, whatever it may be, that seems like a pretty good set of criteria for any branch of science. Right? You must be perceptive, you must be open-minded, and you must really want to practice science and not just think about science. Right? So, His Holiness has been emphasizing a lot over the years now, including in his wonderful book, The Universe in a Single Atom, that within the domain of, of Buddhism, there really is a very powerful mind science. I don't he, think he says, and I would not say, that all of Buddhism simply is a mind science. But within it, there are elements that are clearly scientific and they are driven by the focus on the nature of the mind. And foundational to this, this whole vipassana, this contemplative science, the science of the mind, is the four applications of mindfulness. Now, when I was speaking with this only just a few days ago, I must say it was quite thrilling. I mean, I was, I was so tired from all the traveling, but still I could be there for those 50 minutes, eyes, <laughs> eyes open. It's hard to fall He's sitting right next to my left. So you never fall asleep when the Dalai Lama is speaking right next to you. That just doesn't happen. Um, but he was saying something that really, I felt it in my heart for such a long time, and to hear it, from such an extraordinary individual. Uh, it, I found it simply thrilling. And that is, as he highlighted, really emphasized strongly, that this retreat center he'd like to see established in India, in the region of Bangalore, that it should be show, focusing on shamatha and vipassana, not only in the Buddhist tradition and traditions, multiple traditions, but also seeking out those themes of shamatha and vipassana within non-Buddhist traditions, starting with the Indic traditions, the Hindu tradition, Advaita Vedanta, yoga, the Jaina tradition. But then when I spoke with him a few days ago, he said, oh, also Islam, Christianity. Whoa. Wow. And then he said, what we're looking for, I mean, he, what I'm looking for, he said, I as the Dalai Lama, what's the purpose of this? To revitalize the contemplative traditions of the world and get them back to their core. I don't know anybody else in the world who could do it. I know I don't. I couldn't. I don't have the clout. I don't have the authority. I don't have the, the world renown. I mean, I'm not, in the, I'm not in, the, in the same ballpark. Count me out. There's no way I could swing that. If there's anybody in the world that could, I think it's probably only he. The Pope couldn't. The Pope, I say with respect, but he represents Christianity. He doesn't represent Buddhism and Christianity. This wouldn't be his thing. This wouldn't be the thing of that Pope anyway, the present Pope. 
And I don't know of any other religious figure on the planet who could possibly pull this off. But here is Holiness is not, for, for the last decades, not only venturing out to, to meet with scientists, to collaborate, to engage in conversation, but with leaders in the Muslim world, and the Jewish world, and the Christian world, and the Hindu world, and so forth. He told me, I think I might have mentioned, that he plans, plans to go to the Kumela, the Kumela in January, and keep his eyes wide open for these sadhus, these swamis who've gone down from the Himalayas. And he, and he told me, did I say already? I think I did. No. He said, because he's been there twice before, to the Kumela, where tens of thousands, maybe I think it's hundreds of thousands of people come together for this great celebration, but including yogis who are coming down once a year from the Himalayas where they're living naked up in caves at like 5,000 meters. And he said, he said, I saw them. They're living up in the mountains right through the winter. There's no way they can do that unless they develop Dumo. You know. So he's in a position then to actually be able to invite some of these Hindu swamis and say, would you like to come leave your cave for a little while and come down to Bangalore, to a center here? And then he knows the Muslim leaders. He could ask for some of the Sufi adepts. He knows the people in Advaita Vedanta. He knows all schools of Buddhism. He's been to Japan, to Thailand, and so forth and so on, to Taiwan. He could just, I, if anybody in the world could do this, he's the only one that could do it. I wouldn't even try. I'd be a laughingstock. But he really could. So revitalization of the contemplative traditions of the world, a renaissance, a contemplative renaissance. I mean, that's really exactly what he was getting at. And then the complementary to that, the view, since we are also inviting scientists to the show, scientists to this contemplative facility, to not just study meditators. That's what, that's what we've done thus far. And I've been par party to that, and I say that with no shame, but really the scientists are studying the yogis as other people study titmice, or earthworms, or gorillas, and parakeets, you know? We observe their brains, we observe their behavior. If they can talk, we might interview them, but maybe not, you know? But they're just simply subjects who happen to be meditating. And of course, the central theme of this research facility is that we are bringing extremely well-trained professionals from both sides. People have been through years of theoretical training and experiential experiential experience, contemplative experience, but really professionally trained from the contemplative side and comparably professionally trained neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, physicists, and say, look, we're not here to study your brains. We're here to collaborate with you. Because you neuroscientists, I would say as a Buddhist, you neuroscientists know so much more about the brain that we don't even want to dialogue with you. We want to listen to you. Because you know about the brain. But by the way, we know stuff that you don't know that you'll just never know by studying the brain. Like, how about the nature of a thought? How about the nature of consciousness? How about the origins of consciousness? How about the way the mind interfaces with the body? You're not even getting close. You're not even making any progress. Sorry. But you're really not. And that's because every method has its limitations. The contemplative has limitations. So does the neuroscientific. So does the psychological. And now when we bring these together, then we can all learn from each other in mutually respectful, collaborative research, the likes of which has never taken place on this planet. So what he's proposing there is kind of a big deal. And what we're doing here is very much part of that. Very, very much part of that. So I'd like, think, I'd like to, to close this little opening talk with a, um, a very important statement by the Buddha in his great Mahasatipatthana Sutta, his great discourse on the four applications of mindfulness. Very, very important. It's loaded. 
And I'll make sure, and by the way, just by the way, since we're doing shamatha, that is the instruction in the morning, the passion in the afternoon, um, I think you'll find this a much richer experience, theoretically well-informed, a lot more understanding coming in, is as you're doing the practice, attending the two hours collectively, then doing your own individual meditation practice, if you keep on coming back to at least two texts, and the ones I'm very familiar with because I wrote them, The Attention Revolution covers all the shamatha we'll be doing, and my more recent book, Minding Closely, really covers everything we'll be doing, or at least most, of what we'll do, be doing Vipassana-wise for these eight weeks. So if you could be drenching your mind in them, not, of course, not uncritically, with all discerning intelligence critical and all of that, but I think that will give you a lot of framework, a context for the practice themselves and make the overall experience much richer. Having said that, of course, there are so many other good books. Some of them are classics, like Bhavana Krama, the Sages Meditation by by um, Kamala Shila, the Lamrim Chemo, fantastic. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the Vipassana side, Anala Yubhiku's Satipatthana, the Direct Path to Realization, first-class scholarship, translated from the Pali, excellent scholar. He's a German monk. I met him last year. He's really outstanding. He was at the Mindfulness Conference, of course. He's really first-rate. Excellent. And there are other books as well. But you can augment this, and then you can see just the richness of the shamatha and the vipassana, and then the extraordinary interface between the two. So, here's simply a quote from the Satipatthana Sutta. The Buddha referring to these four applications of mindfulness, and he says, this is the direct path, monks. This is the direct path. All right, so there are many, many practices that can provide you with some really nice scenic routes, going here and there and wandering around and doing some very interesting things and, and so forth that could eventually lead you to liberation. And then there's just the, the outer bond you know, that, just goes, that just doesn't go anywhere else. This is from Hamburg to Frankfurt. It doesn't go anywhere else. Get on the autobahn, stay there in the fast lane. You'll be in Frankfurt before you know it. Because you know, it doesn't go anywhere else. right? Just pedal to the metal. Get in your Maserati, get in the fast lane. Put on your, your blinker on the right side of your car. Go blink, blink, blink. Get out of my way. This is a direct path. It's the fast lane on the autobahn. That's what this direct path is, to liberation. But this, let's read him. This is the direct path, monks, for the purification of beings. Okay, so the first thing he says is pragmatic. For the purification of beings. Purification of What? Purification, of course, like, like a doctor looking at a patient, take this medicine, this will purify your system, this will detoxify your system, this will remove the, 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 the harmful viruses, bacteria, and so forth, this will purify, this will heal for the healing of beings, the purification of beings, purifying what? The klesha avarana, the afflictions of the mind. For the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation. In other words, by purifying, by dispelling, by healing the underlying causes of suffering which lie in the human mind, you thereby overcome sorrow and lamentation. For overcoming pain and grief. In other words, even your experience of pain, physical pain in the body, it shouldn't go away. It shouldn't vanish as if you've had a general anesthesia while you're walking around and so forth, like putting your hand in fire and it not, being, not hurting. Of course it should hurt. That's, your body's sending you a signal. But 
overcoming pain and grief in a way that your experience of even physical suffering is radically transformed. This is the direct path for reaching the authentic path. This is the direct route to reaching the authentic path. One that actually works, one that is a path from here to there, from suffering and the causes of suffering to liberation, the cessation of suffering and its causes. This is an authentic path. It's true. It's real. This is the direct path for realizing, for the realization of nirvana. This is for the total purification, the total liberation of the mind from all afflictive obscurations. And what is this direct path? Namely, it is the four applications of mindfulness. So there, it's a very simple statement. There it is. But there's hidden, it's not very deeply hidden, but one needs to know where to look. The meaning that is hidden there, not so obvious, especially in our, what I would call now, what I would call our modern society being in a pre-contemplative phase. A pre-contemplative, as scientists so often speak, or modern historians speak, of the pre-scientific era, before Galileo, before Copernicus, when we were basically muddling about in the dark, in the dark ages, you know not having awakened, awakened up to the fact that if you want to understand the physical world, the objective world, the quantitative world, you should look at it really closely, which is which, what Galileo did, both in terms of astronomy as well as terrestrial physics. He, like nobody else before him, including Aristotle, he developed the technology and applied it. He made the precise measurements. He had hypotheses. He was the first full scientist because he had all the, all the trappings of what it means to be a scientist in the modern world. And until he started that, we'd say, okay, you're, do you have astrology? Yes. They had had centuries of astrology, and very good astrology. They could predict solar and, moon, uh, solar, solar and lunar eclipses. They knew a lot about the stars. The one thing they didn't do was develop any very sophisticated means for actually observing celestial events. And that's what Gal- that Galileo did. It's called a telescope. From his telescope, eight-power telescope, up to the Hubble telescope, and the, the newer versions that are coming out right now, all of that is about really the core of the scientific method of making the most rigorous, sophisticated, replicable observations of the phenomena under investigation that you possibly can. That is the essence of scientific method. And that's exactly what modern cognitive scientists don't do when it comes to the mind. Don't do. Don't even get close. Don't even try. And that is making rigorous, replicable, sophisticated, precise observations of mental phenomena, not the brain correlates and not the behavioral expressions. So William James said about 110 years ago, when it comes to psychology, it's as if we are in pre... In a, a, contemporary psychology is like, astro, like astronomy prior to Galileo. In other words, like astrology. The astrologer was very good at studying the correlates of celestial bodies, but we're not much good at actually observing them. They actually didn't even try. Not with precision. Just naked eye. Naked eye. Folk astrology. Folk astronomy. And that's where we are. Folk psychology when it comes to the direct observation of mental events. So once again, the complementarity. But the, the statement there is so deep. There's an implication here that's just totally against the grain of the last 400 years of, of Eurocentric civilization. And it's built in, it's core actually to multiple contemplative traditions. It's very well known, it's almost universally known 
among contemplative traditions and almost entirely unknown in the scientific tradition. Right? And that is, then in order to realize, let's say anatta or anatman, non-self, in order to realize that, and by realize it, I mean know it directly, immediately, to drink it in. I mean, totally get it, experientially. Not just figure it out conceptually so you can write a paper on it, but actually to taste it, to immerse your mind in it, to directly realize it. In order for that to take place, you, you have to be more than just smart. Really brilliant philosopher, analyzer, and all that kind of business. You actually have to have a mind, you have to have cultivated a mind that's prepared, that is tuned, that is honed and purified to be able to access, access that truth and drench itself in it. In other words, it's not just about being smart. There are a lot of very good smart scholars who have written very smart essays about anatta without it ever touching home at all. It doesn't even, it's like they're rhinoceri. And, you know, the little mosquito of their conceptual understanding doesn't even penetrate the skin. It has no impact on one's way of life. And this is not only for Western scholars, there are Buddhist scholars who can debate and crush everybody in debate, and yet it never gets in. It never actually penetrates. They can give the greatest Dharma talks and it never gets inside. Why? Because the mind itself has not been prepared to receive that truth. So you get it only on the most superficial level of articulation, conceptualization, being really smart and clever. That's all very well. But no real, does it purify? Does it purify the mind of mental afflictions? The answer is it doesn't even touch them. It doesn't even get close. So the direct preparation for the vipassana to be able to really gain access to these truths, to realize them so that they radically and even irreversibly transform the mind that knows them. And that's, what is, that's the core of this authentic path, that knowing these aspects of reality radically and irreversibly transforms and purifies the mind that has gained such knowledge. For that to take place, you can't bring an ordinary mind and expect that will be sufficient. It's not. That mind has to be trained, purified, by shamatha, by samadhi, by samadhi. The mind that you bring to that must be exceptionally sane. Samadhi means unified. It means coherent. It means composed. It means balanced. That's cognitive, attentional, cognitive, and affective. You must bring a resplendently sane mind to your Vipassana practice, so that when you do penetrate to these deep aspects of reality, such as anatman, non-self, your mind drinks it in, and that realization goes right down to your marrow. It goes down into the very core of your being, so that you can never view reality in a contrary way ever again. It's gone so deep that it's actually your way of viewing reality. And now non-reality is impotent to knock you out. has no power because you're rooted in an authentic way of viewing reality, of anatman. That's not going to happen unless the mind you bring to the pashana is deeply trained in samadhi. And the Buddha specifically said in this regard, and I have to quote this one again, it's really, it's important. And it's just nowhere to be found in, in modern Western civilization, and it's hardly to be found anywhere on the planet these days. As His Holiness commented, just in a conversation a few days ago. He said, 
Any good Buddhist scholar knows that Shamatha Vipassana is the very core of Buddhist meditation. And you don't need to be a brilliant scholar. Just pick up Lamram Chemo, read it, and there it is, boom. And Tsongkhapa is citing the most authoritative sutras, the commentaries. It all boils down to Shamatha Vipassana. That's pan-Buddhist. That's the essence. And then His Holiness commented, yeah, but very few people are practicing it. Very few. A few, yes. But very few. How bizarre. What part of that was unclear? What part of shamatha, vipassana? Didn't you understand? Why you get carried up doing all these other kind of practices and then skip the heart. So if anybody can ferret out to seek out and then lure the really accomplished shamatha practitioners and the the accomplished vipassana practitioners, it will be only one man, I think. I don't know anybody else who has his authority. Shamatha Vipassana. So where was that quote? Here it is. I know it's where it's going to be. Down there. Oh yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It's almost here. Not quite. Oh, it's coming soon. It's getting very close. It's getting hot. It's getting hot. There it is. In the Diga Nikaya, here's a direct statement by the Buddha. So long as these five obscurations are not abandoned, what are the five obscurations? What are the five obscurations that makes your mind unsuitable so that even if you get some insight by way of Vipassana, it won't stick, it will not transform, it will not liberate, because your mind is screwed up. Your mind is obscured. It's dysfunctional. What are the five obscurations that obscure the luminous and pure nature of your own awareness? Five, sensual craving. And that's your addiction to all hedonic pleasure. Malice or ill will, laxity and dullness, excitation and anxiety, and then afflictive uncertainty. Those are the five obscurations, sometimes called the five hindrances. And the Buddha said, so long as these five obscurations are not abandoned, one considers himself as indebted. So now just imagine this. Imagine you're deep in debt. Some of you might find that quite easy. One considers himself as indebted, but now not only you're in debt, sick. Not only sick, you're in bonds. You become, so you're in chains. You're not only in chains, enslaved, and you're lost in a desert track. Have a nice day. And enjoy your Vipassana practice. It's bound to turn out really well. That's, that's really heavy terminology. And he chose his words, he always chose the words very carefully. But insofar as your mind is still encumbered by, obscured, afflicted, toxified by these five obscurations, consider yourself indebted, sick, in bonds, enslaved, and lost in a desert track. Well, you don't need samadhi to be a really good scientist because the technology is free of the five obscurations. Your x-ray, your electron microscope, your... FMRI and so forth. They don't have any of the five obscurations, so they can get nice clean data. The one thing they can't get any clean data on at all is your mind, because your mind and everything that takes place in the mind is invisible to all instruments of scientific technology. So it's good for all the physical stuff, and it's completely blind to everything that happens in your mind. The only observational access you have to the mind is your mind, and if your mind is encumbered by those five obscurations, you are... 
five things down the tubes. So therefore, samadhi is not optional, it is a prerequisite for the wisdom teachings to really have their power of liberating, transforming, alleviating from the causes of suffering. So there it is, samadhi, so often overlooked, ridiculously overlooked, and there is the Buddha himself saying, I mean, you want to debate with the Buddha, have, have a nice day with that one. But samadhi is absolutely prerequisite. But then if you want to develop samadhi, then you better look to the foundation of samadhi, and that's ethics, sila. You know, avoiding the unwholesome, following the, uh, following the wholesome, living a, a nonviolent way of life, a benevolent way of life, and then fine-tuning that so that your whole way of life is just saturated by a discerning mindfulness of recognizing what is wholesome, what is not wholesome, what is conducive to one's own mental well-being, true flourishing or genuine happiness, and what is counterproductive, destructive of genuine happiness. But this means you have to just totally have a radical makeover of your whole way of life. It's just a fundamental shift of a radical reorientation towards a profoundly, essentially, and pervasively ethical way of life. And if you don't, you'll never develop samadhi. It's not like, you know, you shouldn't, you just you won't be able to. Because one can almost define an unethical way of life as that which makes it impossible to develop samadhi. It will erode it. Your sensual craving, hostility, various things, the ten non-virtues and so forth, all of those would be like just putting bombs under your cultivation of samadhi. It'll just fall apart. And you'll go back and retreat and it'll fall apart. Go back and retreat, fall apart. So you've got to have that. So here is a, a science, a contemplative science or an inner science where ethics is not an add-on. Ethics is added on to science. Human subjects Criteria, how can you treat your subjects, human and non-human, what constitutes cruelty, and so forth and so on. So there, there's, there's a lot of regulations there. They're add-ons. They weren't even there 50, 60 years ago. People, psychologists get away with all kinds of stuff. But then, you know, they added on. So that's good. But it's an add-on, right? You don't have to be all that ethical to be a brilliant scientist. And you certainly don't have to be humble. And you certainly don't have to have samadhi. So they have an enormous amount of knowledge in the other branches of science but it doesn't take ethics and doesn't take samadhi and it doesn't transform radically the mind that gains the insights. This is an inner science, adhyatma vidya, an inner science. And the ethics is not an add-on, the ethics is absolutely from its core indispensable because you'll never develop samadhi without it and without samadhi, the, the vipassana that truly liberates will never, realize, will never manifest. So it makes it an exceptional science where virtue is actually part of the scientific process. Virtue is indispensable for gaining knowledge that liberates. It's not an add-on. It's not just being nice. It's core. It's essential. So the pursuit of genuine happiness, the pursuits of truth, and the pursuits of virtue are all bound up together like a braid with three strands. You can't take them apart. If you take one apart, the other two unravel. They're no longer there. So it's an extraordinary science. It's not unique to Buddhism. There are other traditions where there's also those three strands. It's simply very, very clear in the Buddhist tradition. So there it is. There's a little introduction to the relationship between shamatha and vipassana. And of all the traditions, and I am a comparative scholar, that's where my one PhD is in comparative religion, 
I don't know of any other tradition that so lends itself to entry simply with the three qualities of being perceptive, having an open mind, and having a passionate yearning to practice. With, do you have to believe in reincarnation? Do you have to believe in your guru, that your guru is a Buddha? Do you have to believe that the, guru, the, the Buddha was omniscient? Do you have to believe in karma? Do you have to believe in the six realms of existence? How about Meru, Mount Meru? Do you really need to believe in that or not? You know? uh, and the answer is, how many ways do you want us to say, be perceptive, open-minded, and have a real wish to practice? And that's enough. And let everything flow out of that. So I found it very interesting, the first time I've heard him say that with respect to Bangalore and the center and vision there, is that it's going to be secular. Here's a man that's deeply 100% Buddhist, really, but utterly committed to Buddhism. He said, I'm Buddhist, I'm biased. <laughs> I am too, of course, ridiculously so. But, but if you can be aware of your bias, then at least you have some perspective. But with all of his commitment to Buddhism, quite interestingly, and I didn't see it coming. I really didn't see it coming. He said, no, it would be Vipassana across traditions. And the approach would be secular, but secular in the Indian sense of the term. That is, the government of India sense of the term, not the American sense of the term. The American government, American constitution. American constitution is religion, government, stay out of religion, don't mess with it, don't do anything religious, separation of church and state. Keep out. Right? In India, secular means in the spirit of King Ashoka, who himself was Buddhist, but supported all religious traditions throughout India. The Jaina, the Hindu traditions, and so forth. He supported all of them. So the Indian notion of secular is we treat all religions with equal respect, and we support them equally. That's a very different notion of secular. And they also support atheism, because there's a lot of Indian money from the government that goes into very atheistic, reductionistic, materialistic neuroscience. That's another kind of ersatz religion. The government's there to support that too. Not just religious people, but the non-theists, the agnostics, the atheists, whether they're physicists, they're chemists, they're neuroscientists and so forth, money's there. So they really actually mean it. It flows into totally, how do you say, non-religious or even anti-religious modes of inquiry. Why not? Let them have, have some money too. But then it flows out equally to the more religious tradition. So that's a very cool notion of secular. And that's the one His Holiness has promoted now, really quite core to his vision, with his contemplative center in Bangalore. So, I have 30 seconds. When I, th I, when I saw him in Brisbane last summer, I saw him first in, in Hamburg for the Mindfulness Conference, and then in Brisbane. We just had a moment, he was leaving the stage, and I was up there with him, and so he just kind of came over to me. And he said, Alan, if I can say this, this is reflective of what's going on here. It's not about me. It is about what's going on here. He said, what you're doing there in Phuket is really important for Bodhidharma. Okay. So if I were here by myself, living in Phuket, what I would be doing would be quite insignificant. It would be trivial with respect to Bodhidharma. One guy sitting here meditating, so what? You know, that's what we are doing. What Klaus has created here, the people coming here, the shared vision, the, the focus on the shamatha, and now the Vipassana as well. Uh, I think, well, he was very clear. Very clear. We're going to the core here that could help to catalyze a true and much-needed revolution in the mind sciences and a revitalization of contemplative traditions throughout the world. So think large. Think large. 
We're just a small group of people for a very short time. But if your motivation is grand, then your practice is grand. Okay. Have a good night. See you tomorrow. Ah, tomorrow you get to have Sabbath. Practice as you will. And enjoy the day. And I'll see you Monday morning. And then we'll be back in silence.